kind of a treat actually to give a talk to a group like you who've been practicing for this long. I find myself kind of, a, I don't know, excited a little bit actually to be with you in this way. I just want to check the volume. Can you hear me comfortably? So I've always been a little interested in etymology, kind of where words come from and the roots of different words. And it's kind of fascinating to me, this process of how these teachings that were spoken 2,600 years ago in Pali, you know, are written down in books with stories that, that are relevant to our lives and that we understand. And usually the translations that we use of the Pali words are you know, pretty good pretty helpful and sometimes they're not so accurate. Sometimes it's a bit like a game of telephone, understanding what came out of the mouth of a man a long time ago. And uh, you probably guessed tonight I'll be talking about sukha. And I misspelled the word sukha when I was going to look at the Pali English Dictionary. I spelled it S-U-K-K-A. I was looking up you know, the words associated with sukha, and I thought, this, just maybe I've misunderstood it all these years. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized I was spelling it wrong. So I'm talking about sukha, S-U-K-H-A. And um, kind of got me reflecting a little bit, just remembering how these teachings were passed down uh, in the spoken word. And there's a certain kind of rhythm and tone and way of engaging with, um, with Dhamma that we hear, with Dhamma that we hear in, in person. And you know that they weren't recorded until, they weren't written down until 500 years after the Buddha died. And that's a long time for these teachings to be recorded and told and kept alive generation after generation because you know this is a this is a living tradition and the the dharma is alive it's alive here tonight and um i was just considering who may have done the recording 500 you know 500 years ago after the buddha died and it was a, of course a group of senior monastics probably a group of men probably the monastics who had a level of privilege and a level of um, education and a measure of power. And uh, in the late 1800s, the Pali Canon started being translated into English and into German. And, you know, these, these, these translations can't help but be translated through the cultural lens of whoever's doing the translation. This has happened as the um, Buddha Dharma has connected with cultures, you know, throughout Asia and, and now throughout the world. And um, I just learned that, you know, when the canon was being translated into English and German, it was after that, as I understand it, that it was actually translated into the language of the lay people in Thailand and Sri Lanka. So all those years... The, um, the lay people in those Asian countries didn't have the written Pali canon in, in their own language. And they were, they were relying on how they've, they've heard it. And I 
was talking to Tara about it, who reminded me, she's like, it's a little like the Catholic Church with the Bible being in Latin that only certain people could understand. And, uh, and it made it more difficult for the lay people to access it. And, you know, I'm definitely not a scholar <laughs> at all, but um, there's value in going back to understand the early teachings and to really look at the construction of, you know, when we say, oh, the Buddha said this today, what's the context of how we've come to consider that or know that? And um, considering, yeah, who, who was doing the translations, what, what voices are coming through, what perspectives are coming through. And I was um, appreciating the, the way that everything in the teaching is an invitation for us to find out for ourselves. Ahipasako. So none of what we say up here, none of the instructions we give are given in a kind of gospel. It's all an invitation to look at your own experience, find out what rings true for you, what, what, what doesn't fit for you. And I was, uh, I think, you know, International Women's Day was Wednesday, and it's just been, I've kind of been thinking about it. And, um, you know, the story of Mahapajapati Gotami, who went to the Buddha, and she asked for women to be able to be ordained. And, you know, as the story goes, she asked the Buddha three times. And the Buddha said no, over and over again. And, and she was understandably very, very distressed. You know, she was dirty, she was crying, she was upset. And Ananda came up on her and offered to go talk to the Buddha on her behalf. And, you know, Ananda was the Buddha's attendant and a very, very beloved um, being to, to the Buddha. And Ananda reminded the Buddha that Mahapajapati raised him and nursed him when his mother died. And he um, asked, you know, the Buddha, he basically, Ananda convinced the Buddha to allow uh, women to go forth. And that's, that's how it's recorded. And I, I just, I wonder, I wonder if that's how it really happened. You know, I wonder, did she have to ask the Buddha three times? Or was that how it got recorded 500 years later by the people who are in power? I don't know. You know, the Buddha was a human being like us, a heart free from greed, hatred, and delusion. And I, I, it's just a place I'm curious, you know? Was he reluctant at first? Or was that, is that then the game of telephone and how it got told? I don't know. And there's, there's a lot to learn there. There's a lot to learn there. And Venerable Analia has been doing some beautiful um, pieces explaining more and more of the history. But I, I want to a little bit tonight bring in the names of some of the great female um, monastics like Dhammadina, the great teacher. And uh, I think, you know, when we speak about the Buddha and the history, some of you might relate to it as, as actual history, like this is fact, this is what happened. And for some of you, it may be more of a kind of archetypal sort of connection where whether or not you connect with the, f the facts of it, there are elements, basic elements of the human journey of struggle and finding our way and development that are, that are shared in um, the stories about the Buddha and the other, the other people um, of his time.
So that all from a misspelled word. But it's a good reflection. Um, so sukha. Sukha, the next um, condition in this journey of liberative dependent origination. And sukha, you know, we, 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 we translate sukha as happiness. Sukha is actually a particular flavor of happiness. I consider happiness to be a, be a much broader word. So again, in the translation, sukha can be defined as happiness, but happiness we use to talk about a lot of other, a lot of other things. And um, the word sukha, you know, is, is uh, defined as being agreeable and pleasant and pleasant path easy progress, but the experience that I'm talking about is the experience that is known when the mind becomes increasingly collected in the present moment, when the seven factors are in balance, when there's a measure of of faith, and there's interest in the experience, there's tranquility or calm, and from there, the experience deepens into one of a, of a kind of psychosomatic composure that feels quite yummy, <laughs> quite good. It can feel kind of like an engine purring a little bit. A um, satisfying, sweet, um, blissful, embodied sense of well-being. Somebody described it as like an afterglow. So the experience of sukha is it's more refined than than rapture and it's just softer and subtler sweeter um gentler in fact and sukha is a it's an aggregate Adrian gave a talk on the aggregate sukha is a one of the, like a second, uh, the second aggregate, it's an aggregate of feeling, of Vedana. And piti is, is more of a mental formation that has somatic components, but piti is actually a rapt interest and attention, and sukha is this pleasant feeling that we especially recognize in the body. There's a, there's a story that kind of demonstrates the difference between piti and sukha of a person, you know, this is a, if you could imagine a person traveling across the desert, no food, no water, days and days, you know, thirsty, hungry. And if this, this uh, person ran into another traveler and could ask the other traveler, where's the water? And if the other traveler said, you know, go, go through that forest over there, and there will be a lake that you can drink out of. So let's say that the traveler walks a little bit further and, and sees the lake. You know, what that traveler might feel when they see the lake would be something like piti, a kind of joy, a kind of excitement, a kind of uh, energy. And once this traveler made their way to the lake and had a drink of the water, very, very thirsty, a drink of clear cool, pure water, um, there may be the experience of sukha, which is kind of like uh, enjoying the taste. Enjoying, enjoying the taste 
of the object, enjoying the, the flavor of the experience of, of the mind that is becoming increasingly collected. So there's a way that as we bring the, the heart and the body together, um, because they often run at different speeds actually, as they come together, uh, there's, there's bodily formation, there's kaya sankara that is experienced as pleasurable. And I want to be clear about, you know, why, why we're talking about this. Um, having a map, having a map of what unfolds may give you a sense of, you know, just being able to recognize what's happening in your own experience, or perhaps in, in just inspiring, knowing that there is a map and all of this teaching of transcendent dependent liberation, it's empowering in the sense that the teaching is that, is that suffering is not random. It is conditioned. I'm not saying caused, I'm saying conditioned. So your suffering is not your fault. That's not what the Buddha taught. It's not saying you are the fault, you know, your suffering is your fault. The teaching is that suffering arises from a matrix of conditions. And so does freedom. Freedom um, is not random. There are conditions that bring about freedom, which is what we are cultivating here. And um, I, I want to keep situating what we're doing here together this month, both in the context of personal liberation and also in a larger, in a larger context. You know, when you consider the impact of human consciousness, right? The, the impact um, of the collective human heart and mind, it's really powerful. You know, um, the climate is heating up because of human hearts and minds, you know, because of delusion and because of greed and misunderstanding and, um, you know, some of the difficult things happening that I, I know disturb me very deeply and disturb many of you in the political landscape that is affecting so many people around the world. Um, you know, we can talk about the administration and this and that, but, but it's born from human hearts and minds. It's really not about the laws. This is about human hearts and minds. And the awakening happens through these hearts and minds, right here, right here. So um, I guess I take hope. I feel a sense of hope <laughs> with what we're, what we're doing here and the um, potentials being created both individually and, and collectively. I was reflecting on sukha in my own practice and how when I started sitting retreats, uh, they were like some of the hardest things I did in my life. My life wasn't perfect, but retreats were like, oh, really hard. I would do one and I would swear I would never do that to myself again. 
and then I'd sign up for another one, and I would swear I'd never do that to myself again. But there was a way that something was um, being touched in me, some kind of deep truth that my brain couldn't quite make sense out of, but that, that I knew in my bones. And, um, and now, you know, retreats, you never know what's going to happen on a retreat. My re- I would be telling you a big story if I said that my retreats were just a walk in the park. They're not. But I do know that many of the most content moments in my life have happened while I've been practicing on retreat. And uh, there's, a, there's a deep happiness that comes from a kind of um, inward sufficiency, a kind of fullness, enoughness, um, that is not from sense gratification. A kind of um, peace or contentment that comes when we, when we touch something more reliable and more true in our own experience. And there is a natural peace and ease in the mind when we don't disturb it. It's there. I know that you're tasting this. Um, even if you think you aren't, we, we hear in the practice discussions what's, what's happening. And um, there's a way that, you know, those kinds of experiences often are, are fleeting. We're not abiding there all the time, but just touching, tasting, knowing directly, there can be a sense of, oh, right, somewhere inside is the scent of what I've been looking for. Somewhere, there it is. And, and then I think that um, life becomes more workable. I think life becomes more acceptable when we have a sense of the deeper truth that is not outside of who we are. So a, a mercy, actually, a mercy in that kind of understanding. It brings a kind of compassion that can, settle, um, that can settle the anxiety that's there when we don't know that that kind of happiness is even possible. So, sukha, this kind of inward contentedness, is one of the conditions that gives rise to samadhi that gives rise to concentration and collectedness. And pleasantness is okay in the practice. It's allowed. (laughs) You get to be mindful of pleasantness when it's there. It's very different than seeking the pleasantness. Um, You know, if you think about the happiest moment in your life, It probably wasn't just having one taste of great ice cream. You know, it it probably wasn't just a moment of sense gratification. It was probably some moment on some level where you felt a deep connection with another or with the natural world or um, with the cycle of life. You felt in some way connected to um, your being in a deeper way. And pleasure... Um, pleasure's 
valuable in the practice from where I stand. <laughs> different, different teachers hold it differently, but we, we're wired for enjoyment, and it, it's important that the practice has some measure of, of nourishment in it. It's hard to keep going if there's not nourishment some, resting some, and there's a kind of um, enjoyment, a, a, a medicine, a medicine in, in the capacity to enjoy in the practice. There's a way that it can be quite healing, actually, a, a way of being um, secluded from our own stories about ourselves, secluded from the ways we can beat ourselves up. And you each have those moments. You each have those, those moments. Um, so there's a way that it can heal us from some of our anxiety and mistrust and can offer a kind of protection as we move into the waters of a more collected mind and heart. Are you with me? It's so quiet in here. It's always interesting giving talks on long retreat because because you're so settled and I want to know if I'm making sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but the, um, the nourishment is important. It's important on retreats like this. It's important in all of life when, when you think about what you really, really care about. You're probably in it for the long haul, whether it's your family or something with the earth, or your own awakening, or something political, you know, it's pro- you're probably in, in what you really care about for the long haul. And so the kind of um, relaxation and openness that comes from deepening collectedness, it, it, it makes us more buoyant to meet what comes our way. It makes us not be jerked around so much. And so the Buddha was called Sukhiya. He was called the happy one. For all we talk about suffering, I love that the Buddha was called Sukhiya. And, and um, you know, every, all these teachings expand upon a conventional view of what happiness is. Um, they, this is a, I'll be talking about happiness that includes the senses, but goes way beyond the senses. And the Buddha's followers could be recognized because they were um, they use words like joyful and elated and jubilant. And so there's a way that the followers were said to have these you know, just a radiant and relaxed faces. And sometimes we, you know, going on a meditation retreat, it's better than Botox. You don't even need it. You just start to get radiant and relaxed. <laughs> mm. So this pleasure... The pleasure of sukha that is not from gratification of the senses, that is born from a kind of collectedness that, it, that, is, that, is, um, that is inward. The, there's a um, 14th century saint and poet who lived in Kashmir, lol dead, and, and she said, uh, she's also known as Mother Layla, she said, I was passionate. I searched far and wide, but the day the truth found me, I was at home. The day the truth found me, I was at home. 
And as, as there's interest in the experience, as calm comes in, as there's enjoyment and deepening collectedness, you know, the hindrances are more in the, in the, on, at the edge of the experience, not so much in, in the foreground. The hindrances, I said to somebody today, the hindrances, can, it's like they can land on a feather bed, not on hard concrete. So they just become not so much of a problem and, and they don't come up quite as much as the collectedness begins to come in. And everything I'm talking about you know, is, is wildly against the uh, messaging of the dominant culture in this country. We're swimming in a culture here that tells us that happiness is out there. I saw an ad for the Honda CRV. I actually drive a Honda CRV, but it's, it said C-R-A-V-E. And they were using that as a selling point. It's a crave, crave this car. It's just amazing. Um, you know, we think that happiness will be there when we buy a new pair of shoes or when we have the perfect relationship or when we come to Spirit Rock to sit a retreat. You know, when you're finally with the friends where you feel accepted and cool. I could, I could for this hour just have you know, shared all, I mean, there's, there's so much research on happiness going on right now. Brain research, psychological research, there's a ton of research, and it just confirms and validates, you know, what's been being taught for thousands of years by the Buddha. But I wanted to, sh- sh- oh, I'm sorry, it's loud. I wanted to share with you a few words from a blog. It's more than a few words by Mark Morford, who's a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, just some words about our culture. This actually may not be all of your culture, but my culture, the culture, part of my culture in this country. He writes, your terrifying word of the day is microtasking. And it comes by way of a relatively humble, helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management. Because if that's not the meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? (laughs) I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sorts of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you don't need to give a damn about otherwise. But what else are you going to do? Breathe? (laughs) Feel? (laughs) Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? (laughs) He says it's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, think about all you could get done by the end of the day. Think all that you could get checked off your list. He says, in any 48-hour period in 2010, 
he just had read this, in any two-day period in 2010, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the past 30,000 years. That's a fact. No wonder we get overwhelmed, right? No wonder we need to come here more than ever. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. (laughs) He goes on to say how easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day. And time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. He says, what do you want to say at the end of it all? How do you want to go out? Do you want to say, hey, check out my amazing life. I filled every crevice and crease with work, a thing, a scan or a blip to the point where I wasted no time doing anything like sitting still for a moment and feeling the air on my skin. Do you wish to set the world record for task completion? Hey, look, there's a new task for you right now. Awesome. Me, I'm not sure what I want on my epitaph. Probably something about love and whiskey, bliss and consciousness, sex and the yoga of wordplay, or maybe nothing at all. But I do know what I don't want it to say. Here lies Mark Morford. He sure got a lot done. (laughs) I think it's funny. And I also think it's funny because it certainly rings true. And I'm preaching to the choir. You all already know this, but you know, that's kind of the level of pacing that we deal with. So it's no wonder that, um, that we really, um, that, that it's a process of cultivation, that it's a process of our, of our systems really unblending from the frantic pace of this culture and slowing down and um, not bracing so much against our experience. I was, I know I, I'm, not a, I'm not apart from it, it's amazing how busy we as Dharma teachers can get. Really, you know, I was looking at my calendar last month and I was looking at, you know, how much of the time was already planned. And there's a sense of, geez, it's like pre-lived, you know, I know what I'm doing. You know, on a Wednesday, a year and a half from now, and, um, you know, all beautiful stuff, but I just, you know, I found myself lamenting about all the commitments and just needing to really step back and get clear about what really matters the most to me. And, um, and to, to um, you know, be sure that my life is lined up with my own deepest realization part of the power of the statement of each of you each of you coming here but it takes a certain resolve because the momentum to be productive and have somebody to be is is so strong even even here i mean do you find little things to do here little productive things to do in your room and fuss around and you know rearrange things and you know do stuff 
all sorts of stuff to do and clean up and you know we can find stuff to do it's amazing the stuff we can find to do so uh, uh You know, the Buddha spoke about there's all these kinds of happinesses. I won't go through them all, but there's, a, there's household happiness and renunciate happiness. There's happiness of, of the senses. There's uh, the happiness of metta and wishing others well. There's the happiness of earning your livelihood in a way that is non-harming. There's the happiness of being generous and sharing your resources. There's a... Uh, the happiness of spiritual friendship. There's the happiness of the bliss of debtlessness, not having debt. There's the happiness of blamelessness, of living a life where you're not having a lot of regret for your actions. And the Buddha talked about these three, three kinds of sukha, dukkha sukha, which is a happiness that comes from having favorable conditions in, in your life. It's real. You know, it's nice to have a warm bed to go to. It's important to have enough food. Who doesn't love a great piece of music, a great meal? There's anicca sukha, which is the happiness that's based on your mind state. So the happiness that comes when you happen to wake up on the right side of the bed or when something doesn't get under your skin the way it normally might. And there's uh, sukha sukha, which is the happiness that's really independent of the conditions of your life or your mind state. It's that kind of deeper, more enduring, more reliable understanding. It's the happiness of insight. You know, the happiness not of a mind state, but the happiness of understanding the way things are. This is where we begin to touch into the third noble truth, the, the happiness of letting go the joy, the happiness of, of release. Sayadaw Yutejaniya says, the real objective is to understand things. Happiness will then follow naturally. And the highest happiness, one of my favorite quotes of the Buddha is, you know, is that the highest happiness is peace. And he's speaking about He's speaking about nibbana, the highest happiness is peace. It's not the exhilaration or the thrill or the next great thing. It's the, 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 the beautiful coolness of, of a peace of the mind released. So this happiness that doesn't come from sense gratification kind of invites this getting to know how we understand pleasure. And, and for the most part, I think we, we project pleasure externally in a lot of ways. And we project the pleasure that comes from um, being with another person, that comes from a particular um, experience, a state, an environment. Um, Usually when we're projecting pleasure out here, pleasure belongs to something that we don't actually have. And um, I was watching this. I went to the grocery store and I was looking at the lint dark chocolate coconut bars 
and I like them a lot. And there's no problem. I eat them. I'm fine eating them. They're, they taste good. But I, w- I was just watching the mind with it, like seeing this chocolate bar on the shelf, wanting the chocolate bar. And I was just like, is what I want really in that chocolate bar? No. <laughs> you know, what I was wanting was the kind of relaxation and pleasure that I would have maybe if I ate it and then spent a moment enjoying it. You know, but it's not in the chocolate bar. You know, it's the pleasure that's available when I'm present and connected to my, my own nature. And so um, on one level, of course, we have sense pleasure, but what's really happening is that we're, we're making contact with the dimension of who you are that is relaxed, that is spontaneous, that is peaceful. Even, even being in nature, I, I really appreciated Nikki's instructions last night around working with, um, not, it's not even working with, it's just opening to the natural world and the incredible um, kind of calm and nourishment we can find from being in the natural world. I love being in the natural world. It's a big part of my life. But do you have to be in nature to have that experience? You know, there's a way that something about the natural world relaxes us when we're in touch with it. You know, does it belong to nature? Is it our own nature? So there's something about these particular situations, people, experiences we love that help us to um, settle into our own being a little deeper. Even, even how the food tastes. The spirit rock cooks are awesome, aren't they? We've had great food on this retreat. <laughs> Consistently beautiful, lovingly prepared food. And part of why it's so good is the amazing cooks and all the love that goes into it. And you know what the other part probably is? That you're present, right? When you're eating, you're taking your time to taste the food. It tastes better. It's more pleasurable when you slow down and pay attention to um, the experience of eating. So, as the pleasure isn't being projected externally so much, and as we're, we're turning toward the inward experience, um, the, the actual, you know, the moment-to-moment experience, the heart-mind becomes more interesting. Do you find this? That your, your own moment-to-moment experience may become more interesting than following some big following exactly what's on the note board, you know, following the next train of thought. You know, this moment becomes, becomes interesting. So it's really this happiness of, um, of letting go that has to do with being right where you are. And it's a different felt sense than seeking pleasure. You know, being in pursuit of the next pleasant thing can be a narrowing, like an animal going after their prey. can be a kind of narrowing, focusing, and the, the body can kind of be sus- in a state of waiting 
or being suspended for a future that hasn't arrived yet. You know how that feels? <laughs> yeah. So this is a happiness of, of insight, of, of seeing that everything's changing, that this process is happening on its own, that this is, that life is, um, life and nature is happening, and, and there's a natural warmth and glow and sweetness that, that is, um, that arises. Even, even sitting here, you know, just the, you might just notice, you know, in this moment, is there some measure of contentment whether you like what's happening or not? Is it possible just to contact that, that resting, that ease that's right here? So as the attention gathers and sustains, there's a joy in the collected mind. And this allows you to see more clearly, to see into the aggregates that hold up this sense of you. Um, and as we pay attention in this way, the mind gets brighter and brighter. The mind gets brighter and the attention becomes clearer, sharper, and it's possible to pay attention to what's happening in a way where you can relate to experience rather than being um, bound by it. You know, relating to experience. So this inner quality of... Um, of sukha or happiness to, to deal with the inevitable waves that, that are part of our, of our human, human lives. Well, John Shaw says, when we see beyond self, we can no longer cling to happiness. And when we stop clinging, we become happy. It's like a re- reverse, right? Rather than trying to get happy through, through the grabbing it, as we release that, there's a deeper happiness that finds us. And, and the kind of um, happiness I'm speaking about um, you know, it's not just when things are going when things are going well. I caught an email a couple of days ago. It was, it was a. It's so good you're not checking your email here because you, know, you just never know, right? You turn on the computer and you never know what's going to be there. And I opened this email and it was actually a pretty impactful email. It was a pretty hard email to get. It kind of sent me for a loop, and I was just aware of having a. Um, a strong response to this email. There was some frustration and this thing of, oh, what am I going to do with this? And, and um, I wasn't thrilled to get the email. And I was just tracking what was happening because I knew I was giving this talk. That's great. We give talks on topics, so we marinate in them for a while. And I was just tracking the degree of happiness as this um, response and reaction was passing through my system. Because I, on one level, I was I wasn't happy. I was not. I, that was not an email I wanted to get. And yet, there was the capacity to enter the experience as it was, and be really okay with that. There was the capacity to know, frustration is like this. Here's what happens. Here's what's going on in my body. No problem. Got it. And and so there's the happiness of being able to just 
be in contact with the experience and not in contention, in contention with it. And that's just an email, you know, that's just a little story. If you are, you know, the victim of something like oppression or racial injustice or patriarchy or microaggression, you know, there's so, so many um, frustrations and painful things we live with that are much more impactful and enduring than an email, you know, on a daily basis day in, day out, which is part of why there is deep need for this kind of cultivation. Deep need for this kind of cultivation because the suffering in, in your lives, it's not, it's not an abstraction. It's real here in the room. And, um, and the release can't be willed. And we can't just say, okay, I'm going to let that go. I mean, maybe you can do that here and there with some things, but um, the release can't just be willed, and there will be energies of fear and anxiety and hesitation and fantasy, all the things that happen on a retreat like this. Is it possible to touch some measure of allowing, of intimacy right in the center of them? to not be in contention, to allow, allow the space. And I think there's a particular um, satisfaction in the process of cultivation. You know, as Ruth talks so beautifully about, about faith, there's a satisfaction as we continue cultivating and as you see the, the pearls of what's happening moment by moment. I know some of how you know, I've been rolling along in my ongoing study of happiness it, and, and really in the nitty-gritty of waking up because we can say greed, hatred, delusion, but the practice is knowing how this manifests for me in a personal way, right? It's, it's not just greed, hatred, delusion. How is this for you in a moment-to-moment way? Um, is continuing to learn about my experience of being a white woman, you know, continuing to learn about whiteness and the incredible unearned privilege that I meet every day of my life because of the color of my skin. I uh, had some genetic testing done a while ago and learned that I'm 99.99% white really. <laughs> I'm not a little bit white. I'm pretty much as white as it gets. And it was interesting. I'd always had this idea in the back of my mind from my family stories of, oh, there's got to be some other blood. No. <laughs> and, and I've been in exploring just the, the weight and the responsibility that I feel with that. And, um, and the journey of continuing to discover and learn more about how... Um, patriarchy and white supremacy plays out in, in ways that are very, very close in my life and in the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, it can be a painful process, this level of self-discovery and self-inquiry that a committed Dharma practice really asks of us. If we're really honest with our own uh, work, we're exploring identity 
We're exploring the root of identity and how relationship to identity can make us, um, it can perpetuate suffering and make us separate. Or it can be the material through which we wake up. You know, the material that, um, through which we awaken that, that allows for more connectedness. And so the process of the inquiry, I was just like, track the happiness that comes from, you know, the, the inquiry that can feel sticky in places and challenging or shaky in places, but the satisfaction that comes from doing that. You know, the satisfaction that comes from uh, what holds me, what holds you separate when a little more light shines through when some of those barriers begin to melt and there is more connectedness, there is more intimacy. You know, so we're, we're letting go into more of who we are. We're letting go into the truth. And the happiness comes from some measure of trust in, in the process and noticing when you feel more connected. So I'd like to uh, share a couple of utterances from some of the early Buddhist women, women from the Theragata. Um, and you know the, the language is interesting. Um, you'll hear the metaphors for Nibbana being used. And I'll share a couple from a woman named Utama, who is the daughter, she was the daughter of a wealthy merchant. And she heard this great teacher, Patachara, teach. And she went forth, and she was really quite, quite um, she was slow in her development. And later down the road, she reconnected with her great teacher, Patachara, who gave her further, further instructions. And the first um, poem from her is, looking back at what she accomplished. So she's looking back at what she accomplished and this is, this is what she spoke. And you can just imagine, I mean, it's just like voices through millennia speaking to us. Four times, five times, I went out from the monastery, heart without peace, heart out of control, I approached the nun. She seemed like someone I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma about what makes a person, about the senses and their objects, and about the basic elements that make up everything. I listened to what she taught, did exactly as she said. For seven days, I sat in one position, legs crossed, given over to joy and happiness. On the eighth day, I stretched out my feet, after splitting open the mass of mental darkness. I'm going to read another by her, and then I'll read one from her teacher, Patachara. Another from Utama. I have cultivated all seven wings of awakening, paths to the attainment of Nibbana, just as they were taught by the Buddha. I enjoy whenever I want, which, that which is empty, without mark or measure. I am a true daughter of the Buddha, always delighting in Nibbana. 
The urge for all sensual pleasures is cut off, whether they be heavenly or human. The swirl of rebirth is completely finished. Now there is no more birth ahead. And as they're speaking about the end of rebirth, you can, you can you know, hold that in, a, in many, many different ways, but, but really it's the, the heart freed, you know, the heart completely freed from that which binds us from greed and hatred and delusion. And I'll just end with a, um, a poem by Patachara that you might have heard. This is a popular one from the Terragata. Furrowing fields with plows, sowing seeds in the ground, taking care of wives and children, young men find wealth. So why have I not experienced freedom when I am virtuous and do what the teacher taught? when I am not lazy and I am calm. While washing my feet, I made the water useful in another way by concentrating on it move from the higher ground down. Then I held back my mind as one would do with a thoroughbred horse and I took a lamp and went into the hut. First I looked at the bed, then I sat on the couch. I used a needle to pull out the lamp's wick Just as the lamp went out, my mind was free. We'll sit for a moment. May you uh, be happy in the cultivation and may your sights be set on the highest happiness. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.